It is indeed a privilege to be able to come this morning and share with you from the scriptures the things that we all can together rejoice in. And certainly a day to remember our faithful founding pastor and all that he means to us. And we thank the Lord for all the foundation that's been laid. And we can see now what the Lord's built on that and how blessed we are as a people. Amen. And also for our faithful brother, Marcus, preaching in another church where John DeVito's at. We thank the Lord for his continual faithfulness to us and giving us men like that to preach the gospel to us and encourage our hearts. So this morning, as you take your scriptures and look there with me in Proverbs chapter 3, I want you to know, isn't it an encouragement whenever you find somebody who not only tells you what to do, but demonstrates it himself or herself? We call that person faithful. Another person that might tell you to do something and does the opposite, we call that person a hypocrite, right? And uh, though we can learn from a hypocrite, even Jesus said to learn from the Pharisees, it's much easier and it seems to be uh, much more lasting when we learn from someone who is faithful with not only what he says but what he does. And when Solomon, with an opportunity to ask anything from the Lord, you remember in 1 Kings 3, he was given this opportunity, ask whatever you will. I would ask you, what would you ask? I'm certain some of you can think there's a car you would like or a house you would enjoy. There's some other things maybe you would prefer that you would ask. But Solomon, in light of his responsibility that he was about to set on the throne of Israel, he didn't ask for wealth or money. He could have. Not even for a long life, which would have been natural. Or the next of his enemy which maybe would have been just. But he asked for wisdom and understanding that he might be faithful in the kingdom as he was given the responsibility to rule those over which he took responsibility for, for God's sake. And so he would value wisdom. And we could say, as we heard these words read earlier, that instruction or wisdom, he would value it in a larger way than he would see silver or gold. Not only did he write these words and encourage his children with them, but we saw him in his own life at a moment when he could ask for anything and he asked for this thing. So he valued wisdom above those things and demonstrated it in his own life. Would for you wisdom be a, more to be desired than gold or silver or jewels and any of the things you could consider? You know, it's hard to say. We sit here, we've not been given that responsibility like Solomon. But actually you have, haven't you? Every day of your life, you're faced with this. You put a value on things around you. You put a value on the Scripture, the way you pursue God through it. You put a value on wisdom, and what would it be if someone came and looked in your notebook and see what value you placed on wisdom? What would it be? Why is that an important question? Because it's this that Solomon encourages his young sons and those who read the book that would follow us included. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. So this morning as we look into the book of Proverbs and into the scriptures themselves, the Bible encourages us to consider the way in which we walk or travel. This, you see, is vital. And so... The title of the sermon, some of you won't get it if you're young because this show, I don't know if it's still on. The Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous, everybody used to watch, right? The Lifestyles of the Wise and the Prudent. 
What do they look like? Well, they're not going to show you the yachts and the big houses and all the things that draw attention from the eyes of the world. It's not necessarily at all what you're going to see. As a matter of fact, not at all. Though Solomon, we know, was wealthy and we can't hide that fact and shouldn't. But Solomon's heart wasn't after the wealth like that. It's clear he pursued in this place and asked from God wisdom. What if God gave you wisdom and riches? Would riches draw you away from wisdom? It's a good question. But this morning as we began to pursue the Scriptures, consider this. Ponder the path of your own feet. Consider yourself in light of some questions I'm going to ask and think carefully about it. And what most testifies to the place you are in this life will be the things that make up your existence and the way in which you walk. And so this morning, consider that with me. In out of Proverbs. Now, you're going to note in the Scriptures that there's a vast contrast between the wisdom of which Proverbs is speaking and Solomon is teaching about and a wisdom which is of the world. And each of you this morning, when you hear the word wisdom, form in your way of thinking certain things about that word. Some of you have Socrates or Plato or Aristotle in your mind. People who have been tied to and given a title of wise men. Maybe you have in your life enjoyed the pursuit of philosophy as they ask all the questions about life, how things began, how things work, how things operate. Maybe you're a science person and Stephen Hawking comes to your mind when you hear wisdom. But think through it this morning. What is a wise person? And has that ever been a struggle not only for those in the Old Testament... But what about for those in the new? Was it not the Corinthian church that struggled greatly with this? And what, was it not a whole nation like Greece who's been tattooed with this reality? They were considered the nation of the wise, right? And so for you, what do you think when you think of these things? The Bible says some, some things like this about that wisdom. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Clearly, there's a distinction, isn't there? And so we must recognize that this morning. Wisdom is not going to be a biblical wisdom of which we speak. And as you ponder the path of your own feet, you're not asking the question of yourself something like this, what's my IQ? Because that doesn't make the difference in what this biblical wisdom is getting at. It's really important to discern the difference of those things. You might ask how many books you read this past year or how smart your wife thinks you are. Some of you come up with a low standard on that, right? Those things are not the things that indicate the level of wisdom of which the Bible speaks. And so note that difference this morning. Let no one deceive himself, Paul said. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So we would note that in our age and in our day, we would see those who would fit some standard of wisdom, especially of what the world would think, often in a college setting as a professor, 
or in a think tank somewhere as a thinker who gives his opinion about many things, in particular things that go on in the world around him. Or her. Is that what you think of when you consider or think of wisdom? Is it? You see, we associate it with that knowledge and learning. But the Bible does something more than that. It applies an experience and things that see life as it really is from the perspective of God. Someone we view as wise has knowledge, but much more. He can apply it in a productive way. This would be the very thing of which Solomon's getting at. Solomon longs to see life from God's perspective. What's life really about? What are the choices in this life that make a difference in a man's existence? Where do all of these things fit? This is, you see, what the Bible speaks of as wisdom so that you might make that distinction in your own life not to call somebody wise who truly the Scriptures wouldn't say are wise at all. Wise according to a worldly standard. According to God, he catches those wise men in their craftiness, in the way they spin a story or deny that he even exists. Stephen Hawking can look at the stars and say God doesn't exist. Wow, how did he come to that? It's amazing, isn't it? Everything that I've seen that has any kind of complexity has a designer or a creator. Every house I've looked at or car I've driven, I had no question about somebody making that thing. So the first note I want you to see, first question I want to ask you in Proverbs 3 and chapter 5, as you consider some elements of those who in the Bible's statement would be wise is this. Who is your authority? This one, I want you to consider that. What or who is the ultimate arbiter of your life? As you make big decisions or little decisions, who in your life do you consult or think about or consider? Think about that for just a minute. you got a lot of decisions to make in life. You make them every day. You make them about work and relationships and people you know and people you're going to invest in and where you're going to spend your money and how you're going to pursue life in general, how many kids you're going to have and what you're going to teach them when they're here and who you're going to let, let them out to to train them when you're not around. You're going to decide all of these kinds of things. You're going to value certain things and how are you going to pursue pleasure and in what way you'll pursue it. All of these things you see come under the purview of this wisdom and the decision making that you have. The Bible's clear about those who are here among us and like all of us together can say this was either once where we were or where we're presently at. Note this in Ephesians 2. This is the way an unbelieving man makes his decisions. It's very important for you to think first this morning how it is that you make them. And if this is the way you make them, the Bible's helped you define where you're at. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, that you and I, who were lost and undone, this is the way we lived. We followed the course of this world. If your decisions basically are made Like everybody else in the world, that's you and I in our unbelief. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
Just who would that be? That's the devil and the way he operates in the world. If my decisions are based on the way the world does things and principally the way it operates, we can all say, this was all us at one time. The devil has a part in the way in which the world's run, isn't it? First John said there's this system of the world in which he's the prince of the power of the air. And so we know that as we watch our decision-making in our personal lives, if we're carried away by every commercial that comes on, we're easily led into and away from the things we know to be right. It follows that Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 define our principles of making decisions. Note further in this statement, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Is that you? Consider this morning, is this me? Is this my authority, my own, my own passions, and my own mindset, and the way I think? Let's use an illustration. The Bible's clear. The borrower is slave to the lender. When you come to that opportunity to borrow money or to put yourself in a situation where you'll be under the responsibility of another, how do you reason that out? Is it the way the world does? Will you put yourself in a position where you become beholden to a world like that or to someone in the world like that? I know we've all faced that in our own lives. It's not wrong to borrow money. It's wrong to be enslaved to borrowing money. And so we find in the Scriptures these things haven't been written in the book of Proverbs. My only question for that purpose is, how do you make that decision? Is it simply the carrying out of your own mind and your own thinking as you approach a thing like that? Would you think that that kind of decision is outside of God's design in the Scriptures? That's my only question for you at that point. Consider it. So notice in this particular place of what's your authority, this is the statement, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What is trust anyway? Have you thought about that? What is trust? This morning as you look at your spouse, my hope is that you can trust your spouse. You have a confidence in what they say and what they do is who they are and what they're about. Can you trust your boss at work? You see, trust is a thing that's built, isn't it? Someone says something and they do it. And over time what develops is this confidence that what they say they do. And trust is developed. And when you trust someone, you're willing to be vulnerable in that relationship in different ways and at different levels. You see, what this verse is calling us to is a vulnerable relationship where we trust without reservation. But I, I do know this. When you've been burnt in this life and you sense in your heart this struggle with trust, you transfer that to the relationship that you have with God. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you find yourself there, it's so vital that you find yourself out of there because in life there is always an authority. You always make decisions and live life based on something 
And I want you to note in this passage what it is when it's not God. But note this, trust is developed. Children ought to trust their parents. Spouses ought to be able to trust one another. You ought to be able to trust your boss, and your boss ought to be able to trust you. This morning, are you a trustworthy person? Do you do what you say? The Bible says that's a valuable thing, isn't it? Now note this morning, we can look around us and see that there are things where we clearly don't trust. I was looking at this. Only two out of ten people this morning trust their government. Isn't that amazing? I can go on and on with different things just like that where people who ought to be trusted are not trusted. Why would that be the case? Well, for instance, in our present day, someone would say the border's secure and we look 350,000 walk across it. So we know these things aren't true. So what happens to us? We distrust. There's no confidence in what someone says. So you find yourself, and maybe rightly so, when you go to the doctor, you get a what? Second opinion. Now remember, these are all opinions, all right? But in your mind, what you're trying to do is develop trust. You're sick, you're hurting. You want to be fixed and repaired. And what you hear someone say, you want someone else to confirm. You want a second opinion. What are we trying to develop in this life? Why is it in a jury we have someone to lay their hand on the Bible? We want them to be committed to a confidence so that we can trust them when they bear witness to something or some event. You see, everybody wants trust. We want to trust people. We want people that are trustworthy. So when we come to this in the Scriptures, it can be a sweet thing to our ear when we hear something like, trust the Lord with all of your heart. You see, in this pursuit of wisdom, if you're going to pursue wisdom, it starts in this way. Is there a trusting relationship between you and God? Do you really believe Him? Do you? It's vital that you do. Trust is, is this. You put your confidence, you depend on something. Here's a definition that I found that I thought was helpful. Belief in the reliability, the truth, or the ability or strength of someone or something. It's a belief. It's an inward belief in your heart of which you're fully committed to. Is it that you, by deliberate choice, not by indifference, notice, you'll get in your car this morning and you don't even think about it. You get in the car, you turn it on, and you drive down the highway. You put confidence in your tires in an indifferent way, not because you checked them, not because you cognitively thought about it. You just got in your car and drove off. I mean, you trust your tires, but you don't do it deliberately. This is not what the Scriptures is talking about. You deliberately trust in God. You're making a transfer. You're transferring something here. And I want you to note this passage captures that very thing. It's not this indifference kind of thing where you sit in the chair of these pews just knowing that these four, these four legs on this chair are going to hold you up. You didn't check it. You didn't investigate it. You didn't ask anybody about it. 
Not in that. You sit down because you've done it before. Everybody around you've done it. That's a level of trust, but it's not the level of trust of which is spoken of here. You're doing it in a deliberate way, in a considerate way. It's so important for you to understand that very thing. And the question ought to be asked before you trust anybody, is there warrant to trust them? Before you share any intimate thing, you're not going to stop somebody on the street. They're a stranger. You don't know their name. You pull them over to the side. You don't know if they're trustworthy or not. You don't sit there and tell them all of your life story and everything you've done and all the secrets of your closet and open up the skeletons and dump them out. You might find them on the social media tomorrow, right? Matter of fact, you most likely are going to find them there. And so you're not going to do that. Why? You don't know if you can trust them. You don't know if you can trust them. Let me ask you this. Ask the question. Is there any warrant for you to trust God like this in the Bible? Is there? The Bible says, entrust him with everything in you. Don't you love the way in which it puts it? It describes the way... Trust God. It doesn't just simply say that. Trust God with all your heart. Man, I want to go half in. I just want to go half in. Jump in the water. No, it might be cold. I'm going to put my toe in it. You, You remember that as a kid, right? There's those kids that jump in irregardless, and then there's those that it takes an hour to get in. They got their toe in the water, then they've got their foot The Bible says here in this place, it's so important that we understand what it's asking of us. It's asking you and I to transfer this confidence in the Lord in such a way that we're willing, so to speak, to jump in the water and we have full warrant to do so. Why would Solomon say such a thing as this? Would he believe that God could be trusted? Was there any evidence in his life when he sat on his dad's lap and learned this wisdom, David was his father? Was there anything that David could communicate to Solomon that would give him confidence that God could be trusted? If I ask you this morning, has God let you down? you know anybody that God's let down? David was responsible to do what? As a king, right the entire first five books of the Bible so that he would have a copy, that he would read it. And by reading it, he would learn to trust in the Lord. All right? There's some ways which you and I can come to this. One of them, obviously, Romans 1 says, is creation. God has a witness that screams continually, and there is no language where it's not understood. God also inward in our hearts teaches and helps us and confirms to us these things. And then we know in 2 Peter 1, we have the scriptures which confirm the prophecy and it's made more sure. And notice this statement as we conclude this section of the scripture. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, some of you through your life have been pretty mean. And what do you do with a chair when someone in your class was about to sit down in it? They went down with confidence, and what'd you do? You destroyed their confidence. You removed what they're going to lean on. 
are set in. The Bible says this transfer must go on. What is your tendency? And think of the foolishness of it. Your tendency is to trust you, isn't it? Your tendency, brothers and sisters, is to trust you. I've even heard it stated by some and probably thought it myself. Nobody else is watching out for me. I'm going to watch out for myself. How many of you made that statement? If you didn't make it, you thought it. You've been burnt by others and you said, I'm not going to do that again. Your trust in the Lord can't be like this. Well, I'm going to trust some in me and some in him. (laughs) It don't work that way. You see, that's the problem. It doesn't work that way. Why would I not want to trust in me? I don't have a good track record. I can't see beyond the day. Here in a few minutes, something could happen I'm totally unaware of. I know one thing. I'm like you. I have to put my socks and shoes and pants on every morning. And there's some days I don't feel like putting them on because I don't feel that way inward and outward. My body's growing weak and weary. Trust in me? Trust in you? Think of it. We think in this context, when we hear these words, that's a foolish thing, but we live our life this way, don't we? We do. Even the Corinthian church was caught up in the moment when they found themselves, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, trusting in their opinions about a preacher. They took more confidence than trusting in God. Listen, brothers and sisters, we can be led into this so quickly. And when we do, the wisdom that's spoken of in the Scripture is not the way that's reflected in our lives. I would encourage you this morning as you consider yourself, when you know what the Bible says, trust God in it and walk accordingly to it. So you answer this question this morning, please, before you leave. What's your authority? We assume that everybody on the pew of a church trusts God. That's not, we shouldn't do that. We should not do that. As a matter of fact, we can look around. We don't know exactly who's trusting God, at least not in the way God says he wants to be trusted. We gather up the wisdom of the world and we make it our own. This is the way we make decisions. Give it up. Give it up. If in your life you want to demonstrate the lifestyle of the wise and the prudent, give up leaning on your own understanding. It's, it's, you flunk every time, brothers and sisters. Let's move on then to whom are you accountable? The second thing that determines in our life whether or not we're following this wisdom of which the Bible speaks. To whom are you accountable? Notice why I would make this statement. In our day and time, it's very it's it's rare to find someone who would be willing to be accountable, isn't it? Think of your own life. Isn't it easy to live outside the accountability of others, even a local church? It's a rare thing anymore, isn't it, that a local church takes up its responsibility and holds those who join it accountable to what the Bible says. But it's so important. The Bible's all about accountability. The teaching is a lamp and the word is a light and reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 
This accountability thing is huge. And in your mind, if in some sense you're accountable to no one but yourself, you're entirely wrong. The Bible's clear about it here. Accountability is key and critical in this pursuit of wisdom. Notice, he says this, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Wow. What a way to explain this important concept in life. Have you ever considered your life and just which way it unfolds? There's a lot of different directions in which you live. You work, you raise a family, you spend your money, you have thoughts and feelings, you have kids, you have grandkids. You have All of these things are ways of which the Bible speaks. All of these things are paths of which you travel. They make up your life as a whole, these individual pathways that you're a part of. My question this morning is, what does it even mean to be accountable in these ways? You see, it was the churches of the past, one in particular who would divide up the laity and the clergy. There was this separation. Those who were spiritual were a part of the clergy. Those who were just the common folk were part of the laity. The people who just did life in a normal way. The Bible doesn't see it this way. The Bible says that each of us are walking these different paths. The critical part of it is, in what ways in these paths do I acknowledge Him? It's critical, and the New Testament is all about this. Paul and the writers of the New Testament, they say something like this, walk wisely, right? They use that phrase and that teaching over and again. So I'd ask you, in the paths of life that you travel... This is what the Bible's asking of us. We must be in this life accountable. It's critical. In Deuteronomy 8 and 6, this says, So shall you keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. You see, this was no, this wasn't something Solomon came up with. What even something David came up with. It goes as far back as God revealing to Moses the ways in which the nation of Israel were to walk. This was the description. They understood paths. You understand streets and roads and highways, right? So if you want to put it in that way, what street do you travel? You know what street you live on. You know how to get there. This is the same question. In all the ways in which you travel, in all the streets that you would put your car on, in all the places you would go, the Bible asks this question concerning our accountability. So you always notice that when ways and paths are mentioned, it's always tied to what God revealed in the Scriptures. So here you must understand the value of this. Notice there was a man in Scripture who sought to eliminate his accountability and responsibility by washing his hands. You remember that. Pilate says, I know he's not guilty, but I'm captured and caught by my people that I serve. Somebody bring me some water. I got to wash my hands. I don't want the blood of this innocent man on me. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work for Pilate. It doesn't work for us. Accountability is a key part of the wisdom of which the Bible speaks and the way we ought to live. And so it is here demonstrated not only in Pilate's life, but many other lives in the Bible. Try to avoid it is complete foolishness. Proverbs 14, 14 says this, 
the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Notice, the things that will fill your heart are the paths on which you travel. Have you ever wondered what all that means? What kind of fruit you want to eat? You like rotten, nasty fruit? The Bible says travel the paths that aren't designed by God. And the things that you find on them will be the things that you eat in them. And we've seen it. We've all experienced it to one degree or another. And the Bible invites us to this reality. Acknowledge Him in all of your ways. What's the benefit of it? It's beautiful this statement is. To acknowledge Him, what does that mean even? To agree with Him that His paths are right. That's all he's asking. When you ask your kids or when you discipline them, what do you want from them? You want an agreement that what you're asking of them is the right thing. To agree with you about what you're asking. What God's asking in this place is you'd read his word and agree with him that what he said in the way of travel and paths are right and you take them. Is it not greatly frustrating when somebody asks you directions, you give it to them and they go the opposite way? What's the next question you ask? Why did you ask me anyway? Can you imagine when God's given us in his word the design for life and here's the path to travel and what do we do? Lord, I know better. I don't want to take that path. I don't want to travel that way. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to love. I don't want to serve. I don't want to trust like that. But notice the benefit of it. If you acknowledge God in your ways, that doesn't mean you understand all of His ways. You acknowledge Him in your ways. It doesn't mean that you understand all of your ways. You acknowledge Him. You agree with Him about His pattern for life. And notice what occurs. If you ever ask this question, I wonder what God wants me to do. And what you're asking is, he want, what color shirt does he want me to wear? He doesn't care. Put one on that's modest and go on. What job does he want me to do? He doesn't care. Do it honestly with honest work and work with all of your heart in it. And go on. What's this asking? Acknowledge God in your ways. He will direct your steps. Wow. You see, you don't have to worry about the overarching plan of your life. What you need to be concerned with is the activities of pursuing God in the past that He made clear. And when you do that, brothers and sisters, you have this guarantee from heaven. He will watch over you in your life. That's the point of it. But you will reason away, if you're not careful, this very idea. You will say things like this. Well, God doesn't understand my situation. He's not, he's not up on our modern way of living. He doesn't understand if I don't do this or this, I'm not going to fit in my context. Listen, God understands all of that. And the point of the book of Proverbs, as Solomon taught his young sons, was this. You acknowledge God in the direction of your life, in all the ways in which you travel. You find out what he says and you go about the business. An illustration. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And what? 
Poverty will come on you like an armed man. So what does he tell his sons? Go to the ant and learn. This is the thing that the Bible's about. Instructing those who love the cross and love Christ and love these things. Last. Notice in the third place, who do you admire? And think about that question. As you pursue wisdom from the Scriptures, the question comes to us, who do you admire? This is the importance of that statement, to regard a person or a quality or an object with respect or warm approval. Now notice what this passage says. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So there's a choice here. The person that you respect or that you admire, that's the person that you're going to consider wise and in the end, you're going to follow. So notice as this unfolds in the Scripture, there are those who give clear illustrations. Saul in chapter 13, verse 8, he was fighting the Philistines. He had every reason to believe that Samuel was coming after seven days. What Saul got upset with was Samuel wasn't there when he thought he should be there. So he had a, there was a moment of temptation. Saul could reason in his mind, my army's leaving, the Philistines are gathering themselves up, I've got to fight, Saul, Samuel's not here. I want to offer this offering to the Lord so that I'll have God's favor. What do I do? What if you were in that situation? What would you do? If you were there in that moment, what would you or I do in those settings? Man. I can say what I would do on the backside of things. What would I do if I was there when God had told me clearly, wait for Samuel, he'll offer the sacrifice, you're going to battle. We know what Saul did. He offered the sacrifice himself. Samuel came and upbraided him. What's the point? Who admired who here? And we can see Saul's life as a pattern. He had admired his own wisdom. He had himself reasoned it out. If I don't offer this sacrifice, I won't have God's favor in the battle. Even though he told me to wait, what's worse? Not offering it? Or not waiting? Well, he made the wrong choice, didn't he? And he consistently made the wrong choice. What about, I, what about you and I, brothers and sisters, who do you admire in this matter? It's critical to think through in your life. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And then what's the response to that? You depart from evil. You know what the Bible's ask of us all through the Scriptures? It's to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To serve Him with joy and gladness. That's what we've been called to. So the admiration of our heart, even in the moment like Saul found himself, if waiting is what God's called us to do, if I find myself not trusting my own reason, I find my delight and joy in admiring God in the moment. Listen, all of us are going to face numerous difficulties and struggles. Your paths and your ways are not going to be easy. John the Baptist led him to a place where his noggin was cut off. Paul and others found themselves imprisoned and beaten. Isaiah saw in two. All kinds of folks found their situations quite difficult. The question is this. When your love is to Christ 
and to God and the cross of Calvary. And your delight in Him is what it ought to be. What you find in these moments, whether at work, in life, in the doctor's office, when you hear a difficult diagnosis, whatever it might be, you find yourself not trusting in your wisdom, but noting this, fearing the Lord. Why is it that we ought to fear the Lord anyway? How does this have any kind of connection? Are we not taught in so many ways to not fear anything or anybody or any person and fear can create in us some mental struggles maybe that we don't want to have? The Bible, just the opposite of that, says that's not true. Even Christ himself said this to his own apostles. Can you imagine in the moment when Christ was preparing to leave, this is the way he encouraged their hearts. Don't fear him, King. Don't, do not fear him who can kill the body. Most of the apostles would, how would they die? They were martyred, right? Most of them would die at the hands of wicked men. So this came to them from the teaching of Christ. Don't fear him who can kill the body. But fear him who not only can kill the body, but cast your soul into hell. You see, a right fear keeps you from wrong fears. When you fear that men don't love you like they ought or praise you as they should, it won't matter when you fear God rightly. When you admire His look and, and long for His favor, the Bible's clear about this, that what you won't fear is men, nor their condemnation. And so in this life, the question and you can ask yourself, as you make decisions, as you do life, as you think about, your, you ponder your path, do you try to reason away God's Word and justify your own things and be wise in your own eyes? Or is it that you fear the Lord in a healthy way and you know that what God said is true? And so when you come to those moments, when those decisions have to be made, it's that you in your life, Make a right decision because you have a healthy appreciation and a deep delight in the things that God said and what He's revealed. You see, this is biblical wisdom, the Bible says. But I want you to note in closing that the Bible says this about in Proverbs. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The writer of Hebrews said in times past, God had spoken to us through the prophets. In many ways, in divers' manners. But now He's spoken to us through His Son, who's the heir of all things. And so we have to us, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and the Bible in the New Testament explained clearly, Christ has been made unto us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification. Who is most demonstrated, as Proverbs 8 indicates, this wisdom which is from God. Christ himself has demonstrated it, hasn't he? And so we look at the cross and we see God's greatest display of wisdom. We see for us what the world doesn't. We see in it our hope and we smell it, life. And so it is for those who pursue God in this way of wisdom that Christ has become to them the one who we admire, the one to whom we are fully accountable, the one who we see as our ultimate authority. That's the way we live our lives. When wisdom is what we pursue, 
and the right and the biblical way, Christ is the end of all of that, isn't it? And so we find ourselves at His feet, pursuing Him through His Word, delighting in the cross of Calvary that He's put our sins away, knowing that left to ourselves, or having in our own eyes our own wisdom is foolishness indeed. And so I hope this morning that you found as a believer these things to be so. The sadness of it all is this, to believe in Christ and to trust yourself in this life. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, the Bible would indicate this, that you've chosen to trust your own wisdom and your own eternal destiny in your own hands. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you deeply to reconsider. Trust Christ. He's the only one that can carry you in this life and the next. So as we close this time and you pondered your path, I hope that it would be an encouragement to you to understand the wisdom that Solomon spoke of has been completely and openly displayed in Christ who is our Savior. God in the greatest way has on the cross demonstrated this. And so for you and I, we have a greater, a greater desire, a greater inward move to follow this wisdom, even than Solomon in some sense. Knowing now that we see the light shining in a brighter way at Calvary. Would you with me bow as we pray and close? Father, we thank you for your good mercy to us in Christ. Who is, a, who is unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way in which you've displayed everything which God's about, and you've given it to us in your word and displayed it in your life. We pray that you would save those in this congregation who are unbelieving, those who are Christians and love you, who are captured by wisdom that's of the world and is futile, empty, and deceptive. Lord, please, we pray. Do your good work among us and help us, we plead. We love you and thank you so for loving us. And we ask this all, Lord Jesus, in your precious name and for your sake. Amen.